Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Enku. And I'm your co-host, Angel. And this is our 35th episode. For this episode, we are going to talk about a subject that Enku has studied and devoted much of his academic career towards, and that will likely be a perennial theme for this podcast, and that is the topic of gender. The big topic of gender. It is such a big topic. As I say often, I'm glad for big topics because that, well, I used to joke that it gave job security to a social scientist, but just because there are problems, that doesn't mean someone's willing to pay us to study them. So uh, right, right. maybe the but, job security is not as secure. But it certainly gives us lots of things to talk about on the Science Witch podcast. It certainly gives us lots of things to talk about on the Science Witch podcast. You know, I feel like I started really studying gender academically in probably almost like a 15 years ago. I don't think I would have fully been able to like anticipate the gender situation that we're in today. The just really open and blatant attack on non-men. Yes. It's yeah. Yeah, it's a really important topic. So it's it not is. only really fun, but it's yeah, a really important thing for us to be standing and working with. Mhm. Mm Although I don't think in this episode we're necessarily going to get into a lot of the doldrums of the social problems of gender because that would just make us all really sad. And there's a place for that. But I don't think that's quite this episode because I think this episode we're going to be talking more about what is gender from a social science, from magical perspectives, and how, to, how we can think about gender in a way that's empowering for ourselves and our loved ones and our communities, both just as people who live in society and magical creatures who are active in the world. And witchcraft is queer inherently. And, you know, witchcraft is pretty queer. Yes. But before we get to that, let's talk about Patreon. Oh, yeah. But before we get to that, let's talk about Patreon, which is the main way that we support our podcast. We have lots of diverse offerings available at several different levels. At our $1 level, you get access to expanded supplemental material, tarot spreads, recipes, as well as our Patreon Mostly series, which we release, including Who's in Bloom, where we talk about our adulation of the flowers that we find around us. And starting this month, our Deity Deep Dives, where we get to talk about gods and goddesses featured in our sticker exchange. Yeah, I'm working on the episode on Shashat, who is my patron goddess mm. and one of the goddesses that was sort of an inspiration for this entire podcast because she is the goddess of math and science. Yes, so Shashat. she gets to be the first on the deity deep dives. And speaking awesome. of our sticker exchange... At our $5 a month level, you will receive roughly one sticker per month by various artists in our science art coven. I've started doing some preliminary art that I shared on our Patreon for Hecate, the Egyptian frog goddess, who is the comedic counterpart of Hecate and has been sort of synchronistically coming up in our lives, both of our mm -hmm. lives a lot lately. And then I hope to release that kind of closer to the spring equinox. Then my sister-in-law, who is the artist behind our most popular designs of the Morgan and Hecate, is now working on Freya, which I'm really excited oh my about. Gosh. Yeah, our cats, my brother and her cat, and then our cat Kismet get to be the cats that are. Oh, they that pull Freya's chariot. That pulls Freya's chariot, though oh I don't think gosh. she's going to draw the chariot. I think the cats are just kind of like hanging out because. Nice, nice you know cats Aww, but cats. uh on the hecate sticker it features my dog ace and so oh my now the freya sticker gets to feature our cats oh i called dibs for my kitty and puppy to make it into stickers oh yes when absolutely because, <laughs> i mean they are of course adorable. yeah we we get to immortalize our pets in our science witch art <laughs> coven here at the Science Witch Podcast. My sister-in-law is working on Freya and we're going to hope to hopefully have that out either at the end of the holiday season or a little after that. And then once our stickers are out and sent to our Patreon supporters, they are then available on our Etsy store. 
So if you missed getting one of them for your collection, you can always go there and support us that way. Excellent. And at our highest level of support, the Science Witch Coven level, you get access to our quarterly tea subscription, which I'm sending out here soon. And yeah, I'm really excited for it. It's in process in the goat and thistle kitchen. And mm -hmm. yeah, it includes some things that I was able to grow this year and some things that I was able to forage. And yeah, it's just been really beautiful having other venues to share some of these products with. Beyond that, you also receive a tarot reading over Zoom, and we can try to give you some insight into your astrological natal chart. We love to expand our offerings, and we're bringing all of our disparate ADHD gifts to our supporters at this highest level. We have a D&D &D game for patrons, Patreon supporters as well, and periodic offerings related to episodes as they come out. And we're always seeking input for what to talk about on the show from our Patreon community. So if you were hoping to check us out, now is a great time to sign up and see what you can do. Other ways to support the podcast include one-time donations over at Kofi. And if you want to support the podcast but can't afford to make a donation or be a Patreon supporter, you can rate and review us on the platform that you listen to us on. And if you send us a screen cap, we will send you a sticker for free. And as always, just listening and sharing the link and liking on the socials and all of that stuff is another way to share a little bit of love back to the project. Oh, always. Yeah. We love to hear about other people finding out about our podcast and listening to our episodes. I know that our last episode got a lot of buzz, so it was really exciting to see more and more people starting to listen. So yeah. yeah, shout out. Thank you just for listening. Yeah, yeah. that's great too. Yeah, thanks for hanging out. So yeah, today we're talking about gender, mm. the science and magic of gender. How does magic Oot. relate to us as social beings and as magical practitioners? Yeah, yeah. and for me, my journey to becoming and identifying as non-binary has been closely linked with my queer identity and my witchcraft. And so when I was first starting to listen to more podcasts, I really enjoyed this podcast called the Queer Witch Podcast, which was actually mm. how I met Iris. Aww. And Iris was originally my co-host for this podcast. And it was kind of through this, the Queer Witch Podcast that I started to come into this realization that I have always kind of felt weird about identifying with strictly she, her pronouns. And mm -hmm. over the course of, especially during the beginning of the pandemic, I started identifying as non-binary. And I feel that that has helped to connect me to much stronger to my magic without having to try to fit it into any kind of one sort of gender binary and being able to express myself in terms of having aspects of both genders and really like right. playing and being much more gender ambiguous in both my presentation as well as my conceptual inner framework. And that is right. something that I found a lot of power in. Of course, there's a lot of work that went into that in terms of both studying gender and understanding how witchcraft and queer identity are very closely linked. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I feel like maybe we should talk a little bit about what gender is and how it's defined and why it is different than what we consider to be biological sex and what if that even means anything at all. Right, right. So that's one of the things that I was referencing when I was talking about how surprising the current state of the discussion is around gender is the resurgence of mm -hmm. really vocal out there people who just don't get the basic concept, including politicians mm -hmm. and people in the media and people with a lot of power, which it's really disturbing. But at its most basic, gender is not inside of our bodies. It mm -hmm. is not something that is 
inherent and internal and non-changing. It is a cultural system mm -hmm. by which we label certain things and interact with certain things, people, ideas, dispositions as masculine or feminine. Gender systems are basically universal as far as we know. Every culture that we know of has had some sort of gender system for labeling things and ideas and people as more masculine or more feminine. So in that way, it's sort of a cultural universal, but those systems vary wildly between mm -hmm. what's considered masculine and what's considered feminine and who's considered masculine and how many gender categories there are. So we have a general cultural understanding of what gender is that's fairly universal, but the system that is dominant in the United States for the last several decades is not like the only system. Mm -hmm. It's one of a really wide diversity of systems historically for how we work through this dichotomy, this polarization of masculine and feminine. But there is does seem to be something at the cultural level that masculinity and femininity are concepts that are so ubiquitous that I think that's we can't really ignore them mm -hmm. as cultures. Individuals do and can and are free to interact with the dichotomy or not as much as they want as far as their own sort of personal exploration of gender. But at the cultural level, it's pretty universal. Yeah. On to, I guess, the but distinction. The, the, yeah, the distinction, gender is cultural, but right. sex is biological. Right. But even the concept of biological sex is still very murky. It's still <laughs> very murky. There's right. not really any sort of definitive black and white right concepts so, that you can use to say this is male or this is female even right. when we get into the actual like biological mechanisms of sex it gets really difficult to perceptualize as a binary well it's just humans don't fit in these categories right we just don't and we never have and it's fascist to try and make us fit into these categories mm -hmm. And that is at those the biological and the the cultural level. And you know, this idea that we have gender versus sex or culture versus biology is really it's primarily attacked by people who want to conflate them and say that they're the same thing. And the distinction between the two goes back a good ways in social science and I think became much more prominent with Judith Butler's gender trouble and her idea of gender performativity. But still, even if we're thinking only about biology, one thing that I share with anyone I can is a tweet thread, if it's still okay for us to mention that horrendous company with that horrendous owner. It's, it's uh, a screen cap. So we're it's not a screen cap. referencing yes. the... It's from 2020. So when Twitter was... No, it's from 2019. Anyway, yeah, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's at Rebecca R. Helm, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-L-M. We'll put that in the show notes. And she's a biologist that just really destroys a lot of the simplistic, often really violent rhetoric mm -hmm. around gender essentialism. So one of the things that she points out, I'll read excerpts from her tweet mm -hmm. three thread here. She says, it turns out there's only one gene on the Y chromosome that really matters to sex. It's called the SRY gene. During human embryonic development, the SRY protein turns on male-associated genes. Having an SRY gene makes you, quote, genetically male. So this is sort of the, the foundation of the difference, and then it she troubles that, right? So sometimes the SRY gene pops off in the Y chromosome and over to an X chromosome. Surprise! So now you've got an X with an SRY and a Y without an SRY. What does that mean? And she goes on to explain how chromosomes don't operate the same all the time, yeah. right? And that there are a lot of people with XXY or different combinations of chromosomal gender. So mm -hmm. this idea that like, well, there are two sexes and there are two genders and it's all in this DNA thing really doesn't make sense. But then there's also the 
level of hormones and how our bodies produce hormones at sort of expected levels for male or female and how that also is actually a spectrum. It's not a dichotomy. And then the sort of gender within cells is also a spectrum, not a dichotomy. And then we also know that there's a small percentage, but like a percentage of people who are born with sex ambiguous genitalia Mm -hmm. and that people's bodies produce or develop secondary sex characteristics and all sorts of combinations that don't always adhere to cultural standards. So sort of one thing to say like, oh, well, there are two sexes, but then people can do whatever they want with gender. Well, actually, there are up to 1.7% of the population that on one of these dimensions has and what would be called or considered an intersex condition mm-hmm. or that they just are intersex people. And therefore, yeah, it's not even so simple when you're only looking at mm-hmm. biology. And um, one of the issues around only 1.7% of people being intersexed is what happens when a baby is born mm-hmm. with an indeterminate gender that oftentimes the doctor's and nurses will go ahead and make a binary designation of sex mm-hmm. and won't tell the parents. And this has happened countless times. And it is only being something that parents have to actually put into their birth plan in order to prevent. Mm. So there's actually, you have to be vigilant against the idea of assigning a binary gender to your child when that child is born because the default has been just to force them into this construct of the gender binary whereas if we were to essentially allow intersexed people to live as they choose that percentage might actually be much higher That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And even when parents are consulted, often they're approached by medical professionals saying there's something wrong with your baby and we want to fix it. It's not really full consent and understanding. And that is changing, like you said, and some of the guidelines around that are changing. But a lot of people born with uh, ambiguous genitalia are often have been subjected to invasive surgeries Mm -hmm. as babies and young people and these you know sometimes there is an abnormality that leads to like an issue with urination or an actual health issue and there needs that needs to be addressed but we're talking about people with no problem Mm -hmm. everything works as it should work for their body and then the doctors decide to make it not work so that it fits this cultural box and Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like a distillation of the type of gender violence that happens really throughout society, but it's like a really- At the very beginning of life. Yeah, and it's a concrete example. And like, Mm -hmm. people have always been born like this. It's a cultural and often religious and medical choice how society and how authorities and how families respond to Mm -hmm. the- basic diversity of the human experience. Yeah, I'm glad it's changing. I'm glad they're, Me too. they're making some real some real advances there. Or they have been. Of course, we have to protect the advances that we make. Uh, right. As we're yes, because learning. As we continue to see the reaction, the gender violence, especially with the conservative right who have taken on this crusade against trans people mm-hmm. yeah. without any real actual evidence for the necessity of these draconian and transphobic laws like it's just right. become their banner lately as a way to interfere in the lives of kids and right. John Oliver actually did a really awesome episode of last week tonight on the conservative Christian violence against trans people and all of the the laws that they're passing 
against trans athletes and how it's just become this topic that they're using as critical race theory as a way to mm-hmm. just create this us versus them situation. And they're trying to utilize the safety of children <laughs> as oh, yeah. their entire reasoning behind this. And in fact, that they're actually creating much more harm to the right. children with the the rates of suicide of trans and non-gender conforming children is much higher in places where these trans bills have been enacted. There are these right. anti-trans bills have been enacted. And so really it's just satisfying their own fragile concepts of gender that they're yeah. enforcing on these children and making the children feel that their only option is to end their own lives, which is so horribly sad and something that I really feel as witches that we have to be very stalwart defenders of trans kids as as, as witches as our work. 150%. I do want to make sure that we're not conflating intersex with transgender. No. Those are are two different communities with some overlap. Those are very different two communities, but... Something that I feel, and this has been something I've I've seen a lot of trans people talk about is like they were born intersex and then Mm -hmm. they were sort of assigned a gender that really wasn't the gender that they felt that they could express. And they often will muse of like, well, what if I had just been allowed to explore Mm -hmm. my intersex identity? How much more freedom I would have had to really like explore this identity. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, I guess, sort of the first basic answer to what is gender is it's not sex. It's a cultural system. Researchers, theorists, social scientists have tried to think about different ways to think about gender, specifically the cultural system. And I guess some of the dominant ones there would be gender performativity, Mm. which is Similar to doing gender perspective by West and Zimmerman, gender gender performativity being put forward by Butler. And the idea is that gender is something that we do. It's a habit Mm -hmm. that we get into. It's something that we get socialized into from before birth, even at some in some ways. And that it's such a totalizing system in society of how people treat you and what people project onto you and how we as individuals adapt to that, that that's really the mechanism of gender. And so gender is its action. It's a system of meaning. It's a system Mm -hmm. of understanding the self and other. And it's one that's created in interaction. I think these theorists and Others would also tie this into doing gender is enacting gender inequalities. So Mm -hmm. enacting aspects of the socially prescribed masculine or feminine role that reinforce inequality on interpersonal levels and political and economic and, and, you know, every institution of society. But I think the the sort of important flip side to that perhaps could be that the gender system itself is the problem and it's upheld by people of lots of different genders. So right. it's when people who identify as women, for example, engage in reproducing femininity in the next generation and their daughters or in the next generation, or when they do the same thing to sons and like pass like sort of project mm-hmm. a toxic masculinity on their sons that it it upholds gender in the same way as when fathers are doing that to their their sons and daughters and the next generations mm-hmm. through socialization this sort of concept of doing gender and performing gender i feel is very useful because it allows gender to be something that you do as opposed to something you are. And I feel that's much more empowering. And also it doesn't really make this strict sort of idea of I'm a woman, but I like to participate in what would be considered masculine activities. Well, that doesn't matter if you, if if you're performing gender, then you're just performing whatever it is that you want to express as opposed to this is who you are. Right. Yeah, yeah, but what happens in 
in our society and part of sort of the West and Zimmerman analysis or perspective is that in our system, we tend to experience gender as inherent and natural. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't allow for that flexibility. It doesn't allow for stepping out of gender because to step out of gender is to step out of yourself. And so we're yeah, and unfortunately course, not a bunch of mystics or astral travelers stepping out of ourselves periodically. Of course, there is a lot of consequence for stepping out of it. Right. Depending right. on where you're at and what your cultural framework that you're mm -hmm. that you're surrounded by is that there is a lot of reaction towards transgressing the, yeah. the sort of gender binaries. One thing that I often find interesting is that one of the sort of few areas where I feel like women have a lot more leverage is in sort of this like cultural stepping out with like the almost archetype of the tomboy. Yeah. This idea of the tomboy of a, a masculine woman and I ask them if they see that as like a positive, a neutral, or a negative thing. And they almost always say neutral. They're just mm -hmm. like, oh, it's just a tomboy. And I'm like, so what do you call a man who's similarly feminine? Like, what's the term that you use for that? And they never want to say, because it would probably usually be a homophobic slur mm -hmm. that they don't want to say. And I say, you, well, whatever word comes to your head, is it positive or negative? And they're like, no, it's negative. Because of feminism and because of the real gender revolution that we've been through mm -hmm. in the last several decades, like as bad as things are now, I feel like we have to keep perspective of how terrible it was in, right. across society yeah, or how oppressive I'll yes. say. I mean, people found joy and empowerment through the oppressive system. So I don't want to like doom and gloom it too much. Right. But how oppressive these systems were it is something we can also be proud of. Oh yeah, at absolutely. the same time of how far mm -hmm. we've how far we've come. Like, I mean, one of the reasons a person assigned female at birth or AFAB mm -hmm. is the shorthand for that that really attracted me to witchcraft. And you hear this over and over again with AFAB people is that it was the first time that you start to really understand a concept of divinity from a Western, in, in the feminine, the divine feminine right, in a Western right. late stage capitalism context. And this was something that was part of the feminist movement, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, first wave feminism would be during the right to get women to vote. So mm -hmm. that whole period. And then later on, the second wave feminism, which was closely tied to women's liberation was also very intrinsically tied into witchcraft. And of course, right. that's where you get a lot of the Dianic witchcraft. And it was important because how long it has taken us to recognize, especially in Western society, that value of femininity has been a journey. I mean, we didn't actually have a close scientific survey of the vagina until 1990s. Oh, and yeah, yeah. I so did not realize for the I've, longest that's... time, all of our medical quote unquote technology was based on men. And so hmm. there was just this complete and utter disregard for female biological systems and femininity was considered to be something that was always lesser and subordinate and something to be dominated by mm -hmm. masculine. And this is just a concept that pervades almost every single facet of our lives. That's included in, in how medicine was practiced and also just the idea and access of what women had it still baffles my mind that my mother was the first generation to actually be able to have a bank account right like financial solvency wasn't allowed to women until my mother's generation and right. that is something that is kind of wild to think about and this is kind of tying it back to what I was talking about last episode with the ancestral healing with my grandmother who 
I feel in a lot of ways she internalized this sort of toxic femininity that mm. women are only valued based on appearance right. and that you have to be in constant competition with other women for the resources of a man and mm -hmm. that you have to constantly be policing this feminized idea of toxic femininity through being thin, through being attractive to men, through always being the sexual object of desire, but also pious and right. sexually restrained. And that if she had been given the opportunity to have her own bank account and go to mm -hmm. school and be able to actually live in a world where her entire value wasn't distilled to her appearance, that she right. might have expressed her entire identity differently. And that's been something as a person that is living in the 21st century that I really feel very grateful for is how much I get to stand on the shoulders of all of the women and queer people who have fought for the rights. I mean, we just enshrined marriage equality into our constitution yesterday. That happened yesterday <laughs> because- oh. Yeah, I didn't realize that happened. Didn't know that? I heard I heard that there was something in the Senate, but I thought it still had to go to the House. No, it, it passed. It's so it it is it passed the, it passed the House. So now we have gender equality enshrined in our Constitution. But that only happened in 2022. You're talking about ha marriage equality specifically. Marriage equality, yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, when we started college, we were still living under sodomy laws. Yes. Absolutely. Like, do you remember that gay straight alliance campaign we had with t-shirts that said, I am a felon across yes. them and had the sodomy statute on the back? Oh, mm -hmm. I think it they does. changed. I think they actually changed the law right after we did a big print of those shirts. And then they sat in a drawer in my house forever. And I don't know, but I mean, I'm hey, good that we didn't have a reason to use them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we never will that would be a nice thing because a lot of states still have anti-sodomy laws on the books yep. they can't technically enforce them because of the supreme court but they're as ready to know. pop them back into place right yeah as with, we know with the supreme court as it stands nothing is really truly given we have to constantly be vigilant for right. our inherent human rights. And that is something that people who are gender non-conforming know at the heart mm -hmm. is that democracy is not something to just be passive. It is a constant battle. Anybody who with the reproductive rights struggle, that was very much the front and center of this year. These rights are not something that we can just expect to continue. Mm -hmm. This is something that we constantly have to be vigilant and fighting and writing and protesting and doing whatever it was within our power. And gender is something that I feel when you transgress the gender binary, it is constantly a reminder that mm -hmm. our rights are not to be just taken for granted. Right. Yeah, 100%. Getting back to this discussion about witchcraft and the beginnings of witchcraft, and this has been something I've talked to witches from the second wave feminism, the baby boomer generation, and I feel that it's very valuable to understand where witchcraft is coming from in terms of how it was empowering for women, especially during mm -hmm. the 1970s and mentioned this podcast almost every single episode, but Missing Witches recently did a Missing Witches episode on a protest group. And it was mm. non-hierarchical, kind of like what Occupy Wall Street was. That was the precursor to Occupy Wall Street. And which did all sorts of performative activism where they hexed Wall Street. And mm. that was very much tied into the women liberation front. So the witch and women's liberation is very inherently tied together because yeah. the struggles of feminism 
became part of why women were seeking out witchcraft and seeking out this access to the divine feminine, contextualizing that as this was important to the development of witchcraft is this idea of women's liberation and feminine power and connecting to that because that has been and continues to be something that many AFAB people are denied in mm-hmm. their religious structures. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say most of them who are in religious structures, there have been some really good movements in some of the more liberal branches of lots of different faiths mm-hmm. and lots of different different religious communities. But yeah, no, still definitely not a space of equality for most people, mm-hmm. I think, or liberation. Yeah. So that is something that is important to consider when we're talking about gender and how it relates to witchcraft. As witchcraft has continued to evolve and more generations have taken it up, there's sort of been this reaction to Mm. the embracing an idea of the gender spectrum as opposed to the gender binary that Mm -hmm. some of these older generations have been very resistant towards. If you look at the foundations of Wicca, which is not synonymous with witchcraft, something I have to constantly reiterate to people, Wicca, which was popularized in large part thanks to uh, Llewellyn and Scott Cunningham, at least from my generation in the 1990s and early aughts. But Wicca is a religion that was started in the 1950s by Gerald Gardner and Gerald Gardner was, he's made all these claims that he was originally initiated by the secret coven in New Forest. And while, yes, the goddess was part of the practice of Wicca, it really didn't do much for women's liberation. Mm. In fact, in some of the stories you hear about, uh, some of the horror stories is it kind of also became a way to groom women to have sex with men that they normally wouldn't do through this practice of witchcraft. There's sort of this troubling history where women were kind of uplifted in a way, but not in an authentic, sincere way that helped deliver us from the patriarchal toxic structures. It really just put a dress on God and continued to really emphasize these gender binaries. And this is something that continues that in some of the older texts, if you look at some of Gardner's work, original work, which he's not a good writer. Mm. Shit is so boring. I I don't (laughs) recommend it, but it's very much structured in the gender binary and you have Mm -hmm. a priestess and a priest. They do the great right together and it's very fixed. And so for a lot of people, especially during the the 60s and 70s that were queer and didn't fit into this gender binary, Wicca was actually not a safe space Mm -hmm. for queer people. And that's where you start to see a lot more of these off branches like the fairy tradition. And there's some really incredible podcasts about the queer magic and that evolved from the New York and Chicago witchcraft communities. I can put Mm. some of those in the the show notes, which would be really fun to like delve into in a future episode. But um, yeah. As witchcraft continue to expand and you get more and more people participating in it, there wasn't this gender binary violence that you see in a lot of the patriarchal Judeo-Christian religions, mm-hmm. the Abrahamic faiths, I should say. Right, and, right. But there was still sexism. There was still misogyny. It was still mm-hmm. very much present. I've seen a lot of witchcraft traditions, including Wicca, have really started to address some of these inherent misogynistic ideas and really start to deconstruct them. So Wicca has become much more of a religion that embraces gender diversity and embraces queer people that it had been in previous decades. 
Right. This fundamental disconnect now with your second wave feminism Mm -hmm. and then us millennial witches. And this was encapsulated in 2011 at Pantheacon. And shout out to the Modern Witch podcast because (laughs) Devin Hunter was actually there. What has become one of the sort of flashpoints for this whole intergenerational. Yeah, this intergenerational conflict, because that was one of the last Pantheacons that Z Budapest actually went to and participated in. And Z Budapest is a very important witch that we all as witches need to recognize because she was one of the Dianic witches in the 1960s and 70s that really popularized and fought for women's liberation and women's spirituality. In fact, the reason that we can practice tarot and it not be a crime is because Z Budapest went to the Supreme Court after she was fined for practicing tarot in her shop. And so she took it to the Supreme Court to enshrine our rights as witches to practice tarot and it not be illegal. So we do owe a great debt to these second wave Dianic witches that fought so hard. However, it seems like it became such a something they had to fight so hard for that they became so rigid. And now Z has been, she is what we call a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary mm. radical feminist. And right. this is also a term that is used to describe J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. which, and also the reason why I'm so glad I never got a Harry Potter tattoo. Like I almost <laughs> did. Like I was hardcore Potterhead. I've seen all the movies. I've read all the books. Me and my spouse were in line to get the last three books. We were in midnight premiere. We we're huge Potterheads. And I know you can hear arguments about how, oh, you can still love the books without yeah. taking it separate from that. But, you know, honestly, she's ruined it. She's ruined Harry Potter for me. And that's just yeah. a sad thing. <laughs> yeah. Together. I mean, I feel like that argument rings a little different for people who are dead than people who are continuing to piss in the punch bowl like constantly at some point you just have to be like no yeah no so I've seen very similar intergenerational dynamics in the political sphere as well and in I think lots of different ways and I think that a lot of the second wave feminists adopted essentialism as a way of protecting yes what they were protecting their gains, really, then that becomes really hard to step away from. Right. It becomes really hard to be like, no, actually, that wasn't the point the whole time. Our culture changed very quickly, especially with the internet, where I think we sped up our cultural evolution on a lot of things and on the question of gender as well. And so people have had a long political or magical life devoted to a specific perspective. And Uh, I hope we're more flexible when we're elders around questions as they arise like this. Yeah, Yeah. I hope we're given the tools to do better on that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. But again, Missing Witches, shout out to Missing Witches. They do a really good job talking about this dichotomy between Z Budapest and how she is an elder. She is one that we need to thank for her work Mm -hmm. and her sacrifices that she made but we also need to be able to be critical of Mm -hmm. this trans exclusive radical feminism that is continuing to marginalize and hold up violence against Mm -hmm. trans people and not something i feel is in alignment with what it is to truly be a witch. I feel that we as witches are the protectors and the vanguard of the marginalized and the oppressed, and that we need to hold in our circle of care this liminal space where gender can be something that is flexible and we can use it in our magic as a tool and not something to exclude and Mm -hmm. divide us. Right. I guess this is a way to bring all this back to magic. 
How do you find that having this more expansive idea of gender as performance, how do you feel that that has strengthened and empowered you and your magic? Yeah, well, I mean, I think just me as a person and then also in my magic, I think I've been able to put up fewer walls around Mm -hmm. myself, around what I feel comfortable doing or what I feel allowed to do or not do or how I have to do something. And that, yeah, that's been really helpful. I often don't really think about the amount of gender liberation I've cultivated over my life, because I think it's kind of common within my social group, especially as a gay person and as a witch. I don't know. I've gotten into like Facebook groups, sort of making fun of the patriarchy like at first I'm like, oh, that's kind of fun. But at this point I'm like, no snooze for 30 days, snooze for 30 days. Cause it's just, it's sad. Like yeah. it's really sad seeing people post things that are like so limiting to the human experience and being so preoccupied and worried about really ridiculously rigid standards for themselves and others and constantly policing other people. And I'm yeah. just like, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this is a world that most people around me live in mm-hmm. just every day, you know, and I've kind of been blissfully ignorant of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think like as a as a person and then also as a magic worker, I connect to gods and goddesses and I connect to the feminine aspect in gods and the masculine aspects in goddesses and I am able to play with gender and use gender as a palette and I like I yeah I do use he him pronouns I in everyday life tend to present on the masculine side of the spectrum in most ways I have a beard I wear a baseball cap I wear a tie to work but at the same time I feel like I can be a little stylish at the same time. I can like have some sense of aesthetic about myself and how I carry myself that is often stigmatized as feminine. In my magic, I can connect to the moon. I can connect my femininity because I I experience the moon as a feminine presence. And so I can connect with her as a feminine presence as well. It's not like this constant othering and boundary protecting around gender or having to like reinforce distinctions between the two. I think that's how it's helped my magic. It is interesting sometimes being a male identified masculine present, typically masculine presenting ish person who is into goddesses and the goddess and the feminine and herbalism and dance and all of these spaces that are been in my experience overwhelmingly women yeah I spend a lot of time with people who are not men I think that's been good for my magic yeah as well to be pretty selective in the male relationships Mm-hmm. that I have. Yeah. I found that witchcraft tends to be up until recently, it's been largely an experience I've had with feminine or AFAB people. Now it's starting to really shift into which is a gender neutral term. It's not, I mean, mm-hmm. it'll always be gendered in terms of used as a tool for them to commit violence against women. I mean, that's just historically right. what witch has encapsulated, but as far as modern practitioners, which doesn't have a gender, which is mm-hmm. completely does not have to be any one gender or not. And so that has also been very freeing. And the more I have expanded my witchcraft and met more people that practice magic that I've seen just sort of this interesting expression of gender and connection to the different types of gods and goddesses. For instance, in heathenism, it's been such a shame that it's been co-opted by these man's rights activists and white mm-hmm. supremacists, because if you look at the Yadas, man, right. they're hella weird. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the stories of the Norse gods, like Loki, of course, Loki is mm. archetypical queer god. 
because mm -hmm. he really played with gender. He just used gender to do whatever the fuck he wanted to for all of his trickster activities in so far right. as that he transformed himself into a female uh, mayor and then was in specifically to seduce right specifically for the explicit purpose of seducing stallion and then and then having his babies so loki is the mother of schlepnir who is the eight-legged horse that odin rides it's just so, so weird and so queer and it, it just makes me laugh all the time when I I've encountered masculine identifying people that I kind of side eye about their heathen beliefs and I'm just like mm, if you really truly understood the Yetas, you would not be as much of a tool of the patriarchy as you seem to want to emulate and you see that in a lot of mythologies and magical traditions I and mean, I was telling you about the god slash goddess happy which mm, was mm -hmm. an Egyptian deity, a river god. But Happy has both breasts that are streaming with milk and mm -hmm. a giant phallus. And so they were one of the first representations of both the masculine and feminine that later has come to encapsulate Baphomet, which is the goat-headed deity that has both masculine and feminine sex organs that is presented mm -hmm. as the the sacred androgenine that is the alchemical balance of both masculine and feminine and this is something as practitioners that we should strive to incorporate both the polarities into ourselves to be complete and also empowered in our magic that's right that's right. And I mean, I think that is really maybe where some of the gender essentialism and magic comes from is even going back to the hermetic writings, interpreting them as gender being all important, more likely, uh, or the way that I would work with it is just as one polarity among many that we can work with. And it's right. the tension of polarity and duality and working with that energetically that is a source of opening up spaces for power and for manifestation. And combining yeah. the polarities to create something new. Right, right. Are you familiar with Ardhana Narishvara, I believe is how it's pronounced. It's a composite of Shiva and Parvati in the, mm. Hindu, uh, in the Hindu pantheon, which also does the same thing. And then if we think back to even like the Semitic faiths, pagan faiths, there's just often this sense of gender duality within the deity of consorts and within the Buddhist tradition, there is the sort of highly sexualized image of the, the unification of the masculine and feminine principle. So it's, it's pretty central to religion being able to play with gender. Mm -hmm in these ways if you look at the polarity of gender it's just one of many polarities that you can play with like light and dark right colds and hot another polarity that i really enjoy that is kind of deconstructing gender is the polarities of the zodiac and that is oh, that has been yeah. very very useful in my magical practice for instance the polarity between virgo and pisces so mm -hmm. as a Pisces son, Pisces rules the 12th house, which is dreams and ethereal astral projection of the other worlds, the imagination. And mm -hmm. Virgo, the other polarity is an earth sign. It's very much right. rooted in Virgo rules work. The sixth house has to do with your career and your work. Virgo rules the military. It's very much about structure. It tends to come, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, when you're harvesting your grains. And so it's like the practical and then Pisces polarity is the imagination. It is the dreams. It is the collective the aspects of myself that I feel leaning into my Virgo side mm -hmm. when I need to, but also enjoying the polarity of how Virgo and Pisces interact with each other. In the Christian tradition, something we were chatting about mm -hmm. earlier is since I'm culturally in the middle of a very Bible-focused community mm -hmm. that I do think about a good bit. And a lot of the 
gender binary justification is in the Bible for a lot of my neighbors, and it's in Genesis, and it's God created male and female. That's it. And that is what the book says. But what often comes to mind for me is that it also says that God separated the waters from the earth, and Mm -hmm. he separated the sky from the earth, and he separated the night from the day. The act of creation in Genesis is just a list of polarities. It's just a list of polarities that God speaks into existence or into human consciousness or whatever in the mythological story. But none of those polarizations are binary. There's time that's day and there's time that night, but there's also twilight and there's also sunrise and there's also days that are so cloudy that it's dark and there are nights that are so lit up by the full moon that it seems like it's twilight all night long and there are comets and there are eclipses and gender is the only one of those polarities that they then interpret as sacrosanct binary that if you question it you're like questioning god himself specifically himself or whenever i think about my alluvial flooding swamp that i live on is it land is it is it water yes it's just both of those things right you it's know? a liminal space and that it's is a liminal space and that's where we are live, right that's right that's right witches always live in that sort of liminal space and that's where i think witchcraft has become important safe space for mm-hmm. this expanded diversity of gender expression and that right. why we as witches need to allow there to be this diversity because we are liminal beings and this is the liminal space that we protect and we safeguard a lot of the gender violence is the people who burned witches, the people Mm -hmm. who committed atrocities in the name of a lot of these patriarchal religions, and that this hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculinity and femininity, it lumps witches in with people who define the gender binary. And so this is the violent oppression of witches is also the violent oppression of gender nonconforming people. I feel like it's often surprising how much that is just the same thing. Yes. The white supremacist um, Christian nationalist domination of communities all over the world, gender deviance and sexual deviance mm-hmm. and being pagans. Th- those were the two justifications that they gave for all of the horrors that we're still living with today yeah. you can draw yeah, it was... and, and this is something I'll, I'll put in the show notes but i was listening to a podcast on um, the conspirituality podcast where they talked to two sociologists who had written a book on christian nationalism and you can mm-hmm. draw a direct line from the foundations of white supremacy and christian nationalism to the witch hunts Right. In yeah. in this country. And that how that through line takes you all the way through the gender and racial violence that encapsulates the Christian nationalist movement. And so right. this long struggle between witches and the patriarchy has been very much at forefront. And the battleground is gender. And yeah. that as we as witches, we get to say, fuck you to that gender binary and find power in that liminal space wrapping it up for today's episode what do you think is a positive way to express gender you know i think a lot of what i was saying earlier about being able to connect with deity across and throughout gender spectrum but also to think of i don't know you know with working with energy as a magical practitioner there's a lot of giving and receiving there's a lot of taking in there's a lot of giving out it's like all of the polarities that are necessary to do any sort of psychic or magical work or even really like deep like like depth psychology work as mm-hmm. well or shadow work i feel like for when we're really stuck in a gender gender dichotomous gender hierarchy 
mindset, it really makes it impossible to play with those other dichotomies comfortably and those polarities as comfortably. For me, one of the ways that I've learned to heal my relationship with the concept of God has been through approaching the horned God. He represents the sacred masculine, but he's not this brutal patriarch that suppresses any expression of divine femininity. And I see, right. I've come to see the God in the men I love, especially my spouse, in that compassionate, tender, and he accepts the sort of feminine parts of himself, the God, and how the God was the consort and the partner of the goddess, as opposed to dominating over the goddess. And that has been something that has really helped to heal my approach to God. Because when I first came into witchcraft, I rejected all ideas of the God because mm -hmm. I had only known God through this Christian concept of it. And so right. it's been through my exploration of paganism and understanding what it is to be the sacred masculine that I've come to really come around and appreciate the concept nice. of God. For those of us who identify as men in our society, there's just so much healing that needs to happen around oh, yes. masculinity specifically because masculinity has been a primary tool for oppressing non-men, but it's also been a primary tool for men to oppress each other constantly. Right. Yeah. And it overlaps with racism and classism and all sorts, all of the isms or is interspersed with it. Mm -hmm. It's really work that needs to happen, I think, to rescue and build and be in relationship with a non-toxic version of masculinity. If we're going to build a society that's worthy of being a society in any way. The last thing I really wanted to touch on, or another important reason for witches and all people to work with whatever hangup we might have with gender and learn about gender diversity and learn about, regardless of our personal way of being in the world, but like learning to be respectful of other people's way in the world is because trans people are out. It's always been the case that people have known trans people and not known that they are trans or that people have known trans people in the closet and not known that. That's I'm not saying like, oh, there are more trans people today, but trans people are coming out. And so today we have 1.3 million adults estimated who are age 17 and over who identify as trans in the United States and around 1.6 million youth age 12 and under who currently identify as transgender to live in society with people and to be a decent person, much less a decent witch. We have to learn how to live with and to celebrate and love our neighbors and the people who, who we practice magic with and the people that we might end up being or that might end up being the closest people to us. It's a real intergenerational shift that we even sort of people who you and I are millennials and we might be sort of enlightened millennials, the intergenerational schisms that happened between third and second wave feminist sort of broadly defined. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that as millennials when Gen Z is making demands that might sound new to a lot of us because we've lived through certain types of oppression without knowing it. Right. And the more expansive and inclusive that we can make our witchcraft, the more powerful it is. Because right. when we can be a safe space for trans and non-gender conforming people and a safe haven for them, then we get to benefit from all of their unique perspectives on gender and their power. And prior to patriarchy, a lot of people who were gender nonconforming or exhibited both genders in their expression, they were considered holy. They were considered mm -hmm. spiritual because they were connected to these polarities inside of themselves. And so I feel like as part of, and I'm borrowing a term from Terrence McKenna, as part of the archaic revival, we need mm -hmm. to get back to that idea that 
gender non-conforming people are holy, that they have a perspective to teach us about what it is to be human. And that that is powerful. And it is something that we as witches, however we identify, is something that we need to protect. And we need to constantly be vigilant against the patriarchal systems of oppression that are trying to keep us in a box or make sure that women don't have power, make sure that people have to perform gender in this very specific way. They are what is anathema to being a witch. And that is something that's constantly evolving. We also want to be elders and ancestors for this next generation of witches to be proud of and hold us in the high regard. And that is always going to be coming from a place of inclusivity, embracing and celebration and celebration. Absolutely. Celebration and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quick statistics survey, Angel. What would you guess? What percent of people aged 18 to 29 identify as trans or non-binary? Um, I'm going to say it's around 2.3%. It's around 2% that identify as trans and an additional 3% that identify as non-binary. It's yeah. 5.1%. It's... I think it's it's actually, and this is sort of also an aside, but in the furry fandom, 11% of people identify mm. as trans. And that was yeah, actually I mean, my first way to, that my, was my first interactions with trans people was through furry. Yeah. I mean, furry's also in another inherently liminal yeah. space. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So. Well, I think that brings us to a wrap for this episode yeah we'll put a few more things in the show note as well yeah so thank you for tuning in and if you liked this episode then know that this topic will probably be one that we revisit again both with future guests and as we continue to explore play and queer witchcraft and science you can keep up with us via social media at science witch podcast on instagram and facebook but we are no longer on twitter fuck that website And fuck Uh, Elon Musk. Agreed. (laughs) May it crash and burn with all the ridiculous racist hubris it embodies. You can email us, though. You can always email (laughs) us. (laughs) At questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. And we are seeking to line up some ad sponsors for the following year. So if you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please reach out. We are pretty flexible with the offerings. And so we love to support and promote witchy businesses that align with our science, witch values. Finally, you can access show notes and transcripts for this episode on our website at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Until next time, live long and prosper. And blessed be. And fuck Twitter. And fuck Twitter. <laughs>